This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. everybody, it's H, and welcome to the latest installment of Escape Hatch, your portal into cinematic pocket universes. This week, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason. We should just take a moment here and say that this is one of the kinkier movies we've ever watched. And we welcome the author of the official story of Flash Gordon, John Walsh. Yeah, you can imagine parents in, in cinemas kind of thinking, this isn't Star Wars, what have I brought my child to? We cover Dino De Laurentiis' 1980 genre masterpiece, Flash Gordon. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Take a minute to leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcast, or just tell your friends about us, because it really does help new listeners find the show. We also have a Discord server where you can hang out with us online whenever you want, and a Patreon where you can support us and unlock exclusive perks. Links are in the show notes. And now, without further ado, Flash Gordon. Okay, John, so I have to say one of my all-time favorite films, one that I have seen almost more than any other film, definitely not close to Star Wars, but after Star Wars, one of the ones that I've seen the most is, of course, 1982's Arnold Schwarzenegger starring Dino De Laurentiis produced Conan the Barbarian, mm-hmm. and now you have written the definitive behind-the-scenes book, Conan the Barbarian, the official story of the film. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. <laughs> So we heard you on the Conan the Librarian episode of The Stuff Dreams Are Made Of with Dave and Ryan, um, our, our dear friends, uh, and it was great to hear that. So how how did you get into writing books, um, and how did you you know focus on genre as your as your area of expertise? Well, um, what happened was in 2019 I, I wrote a book, Harryhausen: The Lost Movies, all about the unmade oh. films of Ray Harryhausen. Um, I'm a trustee of the Ray Harryhausen Foundation, and uh, amazing. I've been in touch with yeah, I've been wow. in touch with Ray since I was an 18 year old film student, um, which was just huh. a, few, a few years ago now. <laughs> um, and so um, I, I asked him if uh, well, basically I found him first. I was at the London film school in the late 1980s and I was looking to make a documentary about something interesting and I knew he lived in London so I opened up the big telephone directory he was the only R Harryhausen listed so I rang the number <laughs> and he answered the phone that's and, amazing uh, it is, it's kind of a crazy story wow. because um, the, the short film that I made a 16 millimeter short film about Ray's life and career compressed into sort of 15 minutes um uh, was what got me started in in the film business and uh, got me work in television initially when i was but a 20 year old i looked like i was 12 um back in the day <laughs> so there's, there's, there's pictures of me on the internet where i first met ray when i was 18 and i look very pale very ginger and wearing black shirts yeah i look as if i was auditioning for depeche mode <laughs> Um, oh yeah <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so they're there you can find them and so um 
I was always interested in Ray Harryhausen-style projects, you know, monster movie mashups. Ray never called them monsters. He called them creatures, of course. And Sinbad, uh, the Sinbad, Sinbad movies and stuff. Clash of the Titans, Jason the Argonauts, mm-hmm. The Valley of Guanji. Yeah. He made 16 feature films in total. But um, I, I knew from looking after the archive with his daughter, Vanessa, and we have one member of staff as well, um, that there were so many projects he tried to develop himself. There was films he was offered. He was offered the first Marvel movie by uh, Stan Lee. Oh, wow. Um, so I decided, it, oh. it needs to, yeah, exactly. It needs to be in a book. And so I spoke to Titan. What a world who, that would have been. Well, exactly. Um, and, and Titan said to me, yes, we'd love to be in the Harryhausen business, you guys, to do a book. So I wrote it thinking this would be my first and only book. And it came out in 2019. Uh-huh. It did very well. It's very successful. And it's a large format coffee table art book like uh, all of my other books. Right. And they said, would you like to do another one? And uh, I was like, oh, really? And then, what, another Harryhausen book? <laughs> and they said, well, whatever you want to do. And I said, well, this was at the end of uh, or mid sort of 2019. I said, well, you know, next year, 2020, it's the uh, 40th anniversary for Flash Gordon from 1980. And they were like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, it, would uh-huh. need, it needs a making of book. And they were like, yeah. And I said, well, can I do it? And they said, no, because the rights for it are not available. <laughs> they said, we've tried to do it for the 30th and the 35th anniversary and so on. I was like, oh, I thought I came up with a great idea that there was a gap in the market for a book. Right. Right. And they said, look, you know, if, if you can, we'd love you to do that book if you think you can. And I knew Mike Hodges, the director, because we're both members of mm. the Directors Guild of Great Britain. And, uh, Sure. Yeah, you get to meet all the other kind of famous directors like Ridley Scott and Alan Parker and people like that through that. Wow. But I thought, okay, well, we'll we'll just let that slide. But I inquired, um, uh, uh, luckily through Ray Harryhausen still has a legal representative, but uh, Ken Kleinberg, who's who's one of Hollywood's sort of um, more senior sort of lawyers. And so his, his company, Kleinberg Lang, I, I know some of the folks there. And I got a great insight into the people who own the rights for Flash Gordon. And, and basically they were in three mm. places. So they were with um, Universal Pictures, who released the film theatrically. Yep. They're with Studio Canal, the French company, who now owns the physical film. And Hearst, the uh, publication empire that owns the, if you like, the um, Flash Gordon comic strip character. Oh, and so, oh, sure. So we needed all of those people to effectively get around a table and say yes. And uh, so we, um, well, I say we, I mean I, using the raw <laughs> here, I got them around the table and they said yes to me. So I was like, oh, that's very nice. Um, let's let's do the the easy bit then and we'll, we'll write the book. And so right. it was a, quite a struggle writing the book in some ways because there wasn't the visual assets that you might expect uh, for various reasons mm-hmm. because Dino didn't like lots of behind-the-scenes photography. Dino De Laurentiis, the famous Italian producer who made the picture. Sure. Um, a lot of the material hadn't been kept for various reasons, which we can go into. But eventually, with the help of lots of great fans like Rolf Screedy and uh, Bob Lindenmayer, who's a kind of a Flash Gordon um, Yoda, uh-huh. we, we got it together. I spoke to all the people involved. We, we put it together, went through all the various stories of it. And I was like... Phew. That's my second and only book. And so <laughs> I, I, I thought, well, that's it now. I've done, I've done that, you know. I hadn't, didn't have great aspirations to be a published author, but I'm most grateful I've become one. And so it just started with that because it released in lockdown. It sold out virtually instantly. I think it's on its third print run now. 
Um, the second wow. edition book was tidied up wow. some typos and stuff. And so then it was uh-huh. Escape from New York. Then it was Doctor Who and the Daleks. Then it was Conan the Barbarian. Then it was The Wicker Man, which came out just a couple of weeks ago. And I'm currently working oh, yeah. on book number eight. Uh, no, book number seven. And book number eight is waiting for me in the new year. So it's kind of like, oh, what have I done? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what have you done? Yeah. yeah. No, for sure. That's great. That's amazing. Well, and and a lot of the stuff that a lot of the stuff that you've written is right in our wheelhouse. And I I was going to save it till later, but um, I decided like let's just talk about it briefly, like right up top. Like, what are the next books that Escape Hatch thinks you should consider? Yes. And again, we started our podcast as Dune Pod because we were obsessed with David Lynch's Dune and with uh, Denis Villeneuve's upcoming Dune at the time. Um, so obviously, top of the list, and, and we can do these kind of lightning style, uh, and you can say, you know, considered it, it's impossible, uh, or, you know, maybe you'll put it on the list. Uh, but so start Lynch's Dune. Yes, that's on the list. And there's, there's a kind of a thing going on at the moment about that. Oh. Um, but yes, that's that's on the list. And Raffaella De Laurentiis, who worked with me on Conan, she's, she's really in for that. Of and, course. Yeah, there's a whole load of, yes, it's a big yes, two, two thumbs I'm up. I'm just picturing, like... I, all, all of that, uh, the Harkonnen like sets and gear and stuff, and close-ups of the 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 milking rat, mm-hmm. uh, the cat, the rat. milking rat cat apparatus, <laughs> could be good. Yeah. Uh, the third stage guild navigator in all forms, absolutely. The thir- I mean, the, there is yeah, so much mm-hmm. there. Carla Rimbaldi, he needs a book on his own. I mean, yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Yes. Oh wow, wow. Uh, Jason, you go. Well, what is it? What haven't you covered of the De Laurentiis oeuvre at this point? What's left out mm. there? Because I would just like start. I would love to see the De Laurentiis box set, basically of <laughs> of all of the of all of that work. Um, is there are there notable? Are there where are we on like? Well, King you know, Kong, Barbarella, King, for example, well, King Kong, King Kong yeah, seventy six. That that's on my list. Uh, the publishers asked me yeah. to look yeah. at Barbarella, so I'm looking at Barbarella. Um, the the yeah. difficulty is which rights are available through which studios and, uh, right, right. and, and which licenses are available. Because my books are the official story of the film, we have full access to everything. Whereas there's a lot of kind of fan-style mm-hmm. nonfiction out there where somebody's taken it upon themselves to write the making of a film they like that gets printed by right. Amazon on demand. That's fine. Mm. But because these books are available in every bookshop in the world, they have to have all rights yeah. cleared and everything else. So. Yeah, that makes sense. What about Orca for Corey? Uh, H? <laughs> what about Orca? Seems like a key needs like a full treatment. Are we Charlotte are we Rampling? On Come on, Richard yeah. Harris. We we love it. Orca. I mean, it's possibly a, a, one of the lesser known. How about a how about a more well known? What about the Never Ending Story? Mm. Yeah, fabulous. Now the Never Ending Story is is trapped in a certain universe, and that universe is Warner Brothers, who we have an right. active mm. relationship with boo. through the foundation. But um, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I don't want to join in the booze there because I'm I'm we're yeah, trying yeah, to get because yeah, no, you're trying to do business. We're trying to do a 4K restoration of Clash of the Titans as we speak. Um, yeah, beautiful. So, um, that's amazing. Which, which is what we need, you know. Um, but the, mm. the problem is they don't permit licenses for any publishers for, for older titles. Right. So there goes Gremlins. There goes um, the Batman films from Tim Burton. Um, sure. The, 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 Logan's Run, Clash of the Titans. I want to do the making of that because they own part of the MGM library. There's, there's just so many Warner titles. A Blade Runner book in from 1982, you know, a large format coffee table art book on on, on really Scott's film. Hello. So it's, it's a shame. We hope there's going to be a change of policy soon, you know. Mm. 
Uh, that that would be incredible. Yeah, you got Logan's Run I had on the list. Uh, Legend, mm. obviously, uh, r- another mm. Ridley Scott one. Basically, just go through, just go through Dune Pod. Just go we got a lot. Yeah, yeah. Zardos, Zardos, Zardos pictures. So so it's never ending story. Mm. And, uh, Damn it, Excalibur. Uh, Warner's. I know John love. Uh, I know John Borman. Uh, yeah. Oh really? Oh, wow. So. Yeah, so I, I know him through his daughter, um, Katrina. I used to do some work with a, a charity for, for service personnel who have PTSD and uh, the war. Is, is that the one who danced is, is in the Katri- beginning? Yeah, is Katrina the one in Excalibur? Uh, um, yes, it is. Yeah, she is the one who dances. Amazing. Wow. Yes. And her brother's in that too. <laughs> Charlie, yeah. Oh, yeah, Charlie. Talk- yeah, classic. Yeah, we talked younger, about that a fair yeah, amount. Nice. Yeah. Sure. He's a lovely man. Oh, John of course. Williams. He, he wrote part of the foreword mm-hmm. for my Harry House and the Lost movies because we spoke to different directors who were frustrated by the fact they didn't have movies made. Yeah. And uh, people mm. who contributed were Mike Hodges, John Landis, Guillermo del Toro, and and, and, and Nick Meyer, you know, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Sure. And, and right. John Bourne. So I got all these folks together and we did this kind of collaborative foreword where they all sort of bemoaned their unmade films. So. Hmm. Amazing. Amazing. Well, we're going to get into and demonstrate all of the knowledge that you have uh, as we go through our film tonight. I This one I had been holding on to for so long because it meant so much to me, and that is 1980s genre adventure science fiction masterpiece Flash Gordon. And we thought, who better uh, to cover it with no us? No one better. No one better. No one better. So, John, welcome to the pod. Great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me on. I, I listen to the pod all the time. Oh, I that's mean, lovely to hear. Thank you. Incredible. Thank you. We dub it. We dub it into English, especially for a, a British audience. So that's that's I'm glad that's worked out. Thank you very People much. People didn't know we do that. Yeah. The ADR studio at great is personal cost, I imagine. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah, at great cost. <laughs> uh, so we'll be getting into that in just a few minutes. Before we do, Jason, next week on Escape Hatch, everybody's favorite internet visionary slash pottery maker, Tom Coates, another Brit. It's Brit Month. It's true. <laughs> That's great. I hadn't even that's thought great. about that. Yeah, that's a good that's yeah. a good point. So we're so yeah. excited to have Tom uh, joining us. It's a last minute uh, thing that we hooked up, but we are winding back the clock to the 1971 speculative science fact film by Michael Crichton, The Andromeda Strain. Amazing. This is a good movie. This is a very good movie. I did a book report on this movie as a child, and it, it was a it was formative for me. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about it, so uh, I'm glad that we've got time coming back on as well. Can't wait. We're recording tomorrow. Get ready. Double ups. Ready. Jason, are you ready for for November December? It's that time. It doesn't come at it doesn't come at a great time for me. I will say that, but we will take it off. We will take it offline. Best of luck. All right. Very quickly, Jason Hatch news. Would you like to know more news? <laughs> From beyond <laughs> the actors strike is over. All right. Now we're talking. Listen, the actors strike is over. We've been holding off until this was resolved. Uh, it's obviously great news for actors. It's great news for Hollywood. It's great news for escape hatch because it means that the Dune part two premiere is now at least not going to be deferred because of an actor and, screen guild, <laughs> and, and screenwriters guild strike maybe deferred for other reasons, but it's locked in now. And that means that it's time to start the machinery of the escape hatch dune part two 
premier party in San Francisco on the evening of Thursday, March 14th, Boom. 2024. Get hype. Well, we have events starting at four o'clock. We got pre-parties. Yeah. We got the main party. We got post-party. It's gonna yeah. be blowing up. It's a it's gonna be a full, it's gonna be a full situation. Uh, the first details and signups for it will be announced to our discord. Mm. Um, so if you want to get in on this, it's a great time, uh, to join our discord. Some events will be limited capacity and we will be prioritizing our out of count guests as well as our patrons. So please, uh, please come check us out online as well um, as guest so hosts, John, if as you well want, as guest hosts, yes. you want to just you pop over. over. Yeah, yeah. Um, we would love to have people over for this <laughs> event. Um, there will be a special prize awarded for the person who travels the farthest. Ooh. If we can get Ethan out of uh, Australia, he might have it in a cinch. Wow! Um, can I ask what is it? A sash or maybe like a surprise. crown? Oh. I'm making this up as I go along, so we'll <laughs> have to see. It's a copy. We'll it's see. a copy of Conan the Barbarian, the official film story. So. Yes. Yeah. No. We'll 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 have something. But um, <laughs> please sign up at our Discord uh, and uh, get circle that date on your calendars. It's now on. Like it's on Wadib. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very excited. Cannot wait uh, to see that. And uh, so stay tuned for more details as they're coming. Second piece, Jason. Next week, we have a big, big announcement. Oh, my God. I'm terrified. Almost bigger than that one. And we are going to be announcing next week that two weeks from today, we will be dropping one of the biggest crossovers in Escape Hatch history. Mm. Watch what this is space it? next week. We what? can't announce it. We'll tell them next week. Oh, okay. All right. Do I know what it is? Yeah, you know what it is. <laughs> is it a secret to me? <laughs> We've been working on it for the last couple of weeks. Okay, very good. All right. Yeah, you're going to be fine. All right, stay tuned. Big, big announcement. All right, very quickly, new Discord members, Terrence, Shuppy, Redacted, and Monster. Yeah, welcome. Sign up. Perfect timing. Sign up for the event. Get Get your VIPs. Yes. All right, are you guys ready to get into this movie? Yeah, let's go. All right, here we go. Flash Gordon is the drive to throw off the yoke of oppression in the pursuit of victory of freedom. Mm -hmm. Flash Gordon, quarterback, New York Jets, is just a man with a man's courage who is suddenly thrust into the spotlight when the Earth is attacked by Ming the Merciless, a nearly all-powerful yet power-mad tyrant from the deepest recesses of space. Launched to the planet Mongo on a rocket ship alongside the beautiful and fierce Dale Arden and genius scientist Hans Zarkov, and desperately on the run, Flash will seek to build alliances with the warring princes Baron and Volton mm-hmm. and the sultry daughter of Ming herself, Aura. By his very audacity to stand up to Ming, he will show the others the way, throw down Ming, and forge a place in history among all the kingdoms of Mongo as the mm-hmm. fearless hero, Flash mm-hmm. Gordon. Mm-mm. That was a great synopsis. You've been waiting your whole life for this. All right. So, John, what is your first experience with Flash Gordon? Well, I wanted to see Flash Gordon in the cinema. 
And of course, that wasn't possible because uh, I live in, in a part of London called Greenwich in the South London. And near Greenwich okay. Park, near the observatory. In fact, just out, out, out my window mm-hmm. here, I can see the Royal Observatory. Um, it Whoa, didn't come to my it? local cinema. So it was so unsuccessful at the time. And there were so few screens because in, in the UK in the early sort of 80s, there weren't multiplexes. Cinemas had just one very large screen. Mm-hmm. And so if a film didn't do well, distributors would pull prints before they'd go into into regional parts of London, although it's kind of now considered central London. We we were considered greater <laughs> right, at right. the time. So um, I didn't get to see it in the cinema at the time. So it would have been on VHS. And so that would have been oh quite God. tightly cropped and panned and scanned. Oh, no. Um, but it was a long time before it was on television in the UK as well. And then it was a while before we got the widescreen version. And then in, 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 in rerun years, I saw it in cinemas. But um, it, was, it was quite hard to find. And the film didn't do as well as it should have done, perhaps. And we kind of cover that in the book as well. But uh, mm-hmm. so my first experience was, was good old VHS. Wow. Love that. Uh, Jason, is that the same for you as well? Because you were only four, right? I was only four. All right. Listen, <laughs> we got to talk about this. It's been a recurring bit on this podcast <laughs> that I hadn't seen this movie but I, I don't know at what point I just believed that it was a bit and that I had seen this movie and I was just doing it uh, as a joke. And then I started to watch Flash Gordon for the podcast and I realized, in fact, I had never seen this movie, which is kind of wild. It's kind of wild that I've never seen Flash Gordon because I've seen essentially every other movie of genre that came out 80s, between yeah. Yeah. yeah, like 1977 and 1987. Like, of course, I don't know. I cannot explain why this was an omission that was never corrected. I don't know why it was not a VHS that was in our house. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I, I, but like from the opening, like the opening scene of the movie is the, uh, you know, whatever I'm feeling bored. And I was like, Oh, I, the only reason I know that is because it's a sample that the orb uses. Yes. And like, I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know that that was, I didn't know that this was being sampled from flash Gordon. I just know it as the sample that the orb used. So this was a real journey of discovery for me. Um, and it was exciting to get to watch it for the first time, knowing we're going to have such an illustrious guest coming on. Amazing. Yeah. Well, welcome. Thank and you. I cannot wait. I, I'm praying that we're going to survive this episode. Uh, we'll survive. That, we'll survive. Okay. okay, very good. Uh, my first exposure to Flash Gordon was actually the Buster Crab cereals. You keep your slimy hands off her and you grab him. The black and white from the 30s. Um, and I used to watch those all the time on, was it PBS? Right. It was really cool. PBS, they showed those. They showed Lone Ranger. Later, they showed Monty Python, uh, you know, episodes. Like, there's a lot of good stuff that came uh, across PBS in the early, in the 70s and, and into the 80s. So, yeah, I was obsessed with those. And then when the film came out, I saw it in the theater. I remember I saw it with my cousin David, mm. and I was just completely blown away. Uh, I, you know, went the whole roller coaster of all the emotions that we go through in this film. Um, and then had it on video very quickly after and just watched this thing a billion times. So yeah, I know every frame of this film inside mm-hmm. now. Um, and, and my love is just so great. <laughs> my love is so great. Ah, oh, but Mike Hodges has changed some of the frames. So the 4k remaster that studio canal did, I had a discussion with Mike mm. about this. Some of the frames were changed. Oh my God. Okay. Well, yes. Yeah, so, well, you, I'm going to ask you to point those out, uh, when we get there. So let's do some quick behind the scenes 
scenes, and then we'll do more behind the scenes as we walk through the film itself. But first of all, just Flash was created by Alex Raymond. Um, and so do you want to just speak briefly about, about Alex and, and you know, his kind of place in, in the comic world at that time? Yeah, so his his comic strip first came out in 1931 and published by King Features, who still effectively owned the character mm. Flash Gordon. And we had to speak to the folks down there who were great about allowing us to do this book. And, uh, you know, he also came up with the... Um, it was as a rival to um, Buck Rogers in the 25th century, if you can believe it. So right. it was um, around that time in the, in the mid-30s that Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon were both kind of vying for newspaper space. And it was a colour mm. strip as well, which is unusual for the time. But interestingly, Alex Raymond was basing Ming the Merciless and the regime on Mongo mm. um, as, a, as a reflection of Red China. As, as, as folks in America mm-hmm. would have referred to China at the time, red China. Maybe f- people still do mm-hmm. um, because it's still very red. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still very Chinese. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, these comic strips were incredibly popular. They were syndicated into other newspapers as well. There was the uh, cinema serial with Buster Crab that you rightly talked about there, Matt. So I, I used to see that on BBC television. They used to have that along mm. with, I think it was Rocket Man that looks quite like Rocketeer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rocket Man. Commander mm-hmm. Cody. Yeah, and things like that. So the, the reason those shows got repeated and, and licensed a lot for children's television was because they were very cheap. It was cheap to license those kind of shows. But um, sure, really, you know, I think Alex Raymond is, is, is somewhat forgotten in the universe of Flash Gordon. When we think of the people who created Superman and Spider-Man and so on, their names are up in lights when those films are sort of reissued and they're talked about. Um, I think mm-hmm. kind of Alex Raymond is, is slightly sort of left behind, which is um, somewhat of a shame. But uh, his comic strips have been fully restored and Tyson Books have actually released some of them in different volumes as well over recent years. So ah, I think it's kind of been mm-hmm. rediscovered. And I know when my book came out in 2020, they did a special reprint of the books of Alex Raymond's comic strip and uh, and that came out as well and they, they sold more of them because it's all about selling stuff. But uh, he, he sadly died in 1956, aged only 46, Jeez. Uh, leaving behind a wife and five children. Uh, and a legacy mm. that would was Holy sort of enjoyed for decades, of course. But um, it's uh, it's a rather sad tale that. But um, it's uh, what a shame, what a shame, really. Yeah, and, and not yeah. a dissimilar tale to Robert E. Howard, uh, who died at a very young age. The man who created right. Conan the Barbarian. Conan, yeah, um, yeah. Except in, in in Robert E. Howard's case, he hadn't lived long enough to enjoy the success of his character. Um, but uh, he he tragically um, died by his own hand, um, which is which is a real shame. Oh my gosh. I just, we have to digress just for just for ninety seconds here. Is it true that Robert E. Howard like had kind of like a lucid hallucination that Conan, as a character, was standing behind his shoulder and telling him like what to write, and he wrote feverishly all night and basically created that? Is that is that a true story? Yes. So this is this is what we believe. So um, because of that, it's, it's, we suspect that he may have he may have been bipolar. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's no um, disrespect to him or his legacy or his memory, but uh, if anything, it shows the great power he had in control in, in managing to challenge, uh, channel something that was effectively a mental health crisis into something that was creative and had, had a, mm-hmm. a lasting legacy. Yeah, that is amazing. All right, so the last thing I'll say about Alex Raymond's artwork, yeah. the artwork is absolutely gorgeous, um, and we see some of it during the credits. Uh, they have it uh, in line. It really is stunning and and you know, really even has like a modern 
um, vibe to it. So, so I love that. Uh, we've talked about the serials, uh, some of them, uh, you know, television, and then also movie versions of them. In the early seventies, George Lucas tried to get the rights to Flash Gordon, um, but could not get them, and so went off instead and made his own competing project uh, called, I think, Star Wars. <laughs> Dumb name. That's pretty fascinating. <laughs> so when did Dino get the rights uh, to Flash Gordon? So Dino had the rights by the mid-1970s. So we think it's around the same time that George Lucas was looking. And of course, um, people who have IPs, intellectual properties like this, get pitched all the time from television and, and other publishers, and of course, from Hollywood. Um, sure. The frustrating thing here about George Lucas is there's a... As you say, that happened. He, he didn't cut a deal with the folks there at Hearst. Went off and did basically Flash Gordon, used many similar characters. We have some lovely artwork here in the in the book, which kind of spoofs that. Um, it's under the uh -huh. section called uh, Bigger Than Star Wars, where we, we um, uh -huh. I think it's the Hindelbrandt poster that we, uh, that we recreate on page 11. I say we, it's right. the artist right, Jim right. Sweet who did this. Uh, um, off his own mm. back and he's in the second That's edition great. book it's, it's a colour version and, mm. and, and and really the bizarre thing here is so George Lucas goes off and, and, and gets June and Flash Gordon and calls it Star Wars okay fine you know let's let that go but uh -huh. then when NBC <laughs> television makes Battlestar Galactica in 1978-79 right. he, he takes them yeah. to court because John Dykstra right. has done very good special effects i said oh you've you've of stolen course. star wars i don't think he used that voice it's probably much deeper you've stolen star wars and of course <laughs> what you're the guy who who, who borrowed if we can call it that um uh june um you know, the seven samurai uh flash gordon and whatever else you fancied and just renamed it um yes but yeah a, a bizarre situation you know dino was looking for a franchisable series and so he mm -hmm. saw this because of the cinema serial with Buster Crab, he thought it would be franchisable. Mm -hmm. And we talk about that in the book. He tried to buy Pinewood Studios, which is the UK's biggest film studio, to make three Flash Gordons back-to-back. -back. And we have the details of the three Flash Gordon films that would have been back-to-back. -back. But he was going to kick things off with Nick Rogue, the director of uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth and Don't Look Now. But uh, Oh, wow. That didn't pan out. And lots of expensive artwork was created that's never been seen before. But guess what? It's in my book. Um, yes. So, <laughs> um, so that had all been um, hidden away in the British Film Institute here, the government-funded um, mm. sort of uh, library and archive resource for uh, British filmmakers. That that is just wild. The idea of just like of of just like hitting the road and doing you know back to back to back to me make, makes a lot of sense. Jason, uh, let's just list these out really quick. Uh, so Barbarella, Waterloo, Serpico, these are all Dino films, Death Wish, yep. Three Days of the Condor, which we've covered, King Kong, Orca, Conan, The Dead Zone, yep. Firestarter, Dune, Manhunter, mm. didn't you, my man? <laughs> Blue Velvet, Army of Darkness, and Bound. <laughs> we've covered a lot. We've, oh, got a, we've got a fair amount of those. I think it counts like six or seven, something like that. I feel at proud least. of our legacy. Yes. Um, that's We're great. Get we, should be, we should at least be on the De Laurentiis Christmas card list at this point. Like at <laughs> least like, you know, just to get like the, not the hand signed one, but like the right. auto pen one. 
Yeah, Rafaela, call us. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and Dino had always, he had also, he'd wanted Fellini to direct originally, uh, who optioned it but never made it. Um, and then he had also approached Sergio Leone, uh, who refused. Um, and then Mike Hodges came in. Um, and I thought did uh, a really incredible job. And we'll talk about it more when we start walking through the film here in just a minute. But, um, he just comes across, especially in your book, he comes across as an extremely chill guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and like tasked with running a project, the scope of which and the execution of which was far beyond anything he had ever attempted before. He kept it very loose and fluid and improvisational. Yeah. And so many of the choices they made worked out so well. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was happenstance in a sense, because, um, Mike had left another film. He'd got sacked from The Omen 2, or Damien Omen 2. As mm. And uh, I spoke to Mike about this, and uh, it's um, it's a tricky thing. You know, if you get sacked from a film, um, it's, it's, it's a big insurance kerfuffle, because once insurance know, even if you're not making the claim, if anyone's ever been involved with in- completion guarantee people, they need to know, you have to tell them. It's like, I'm not making a claim, but you're going to need to know we had to sack the DOP or the cameraman. They're like, what's the uh-huh. name? So uh-huh. do we have to tell you the name? Give us the name because we're going to describe it into a stone somewhere. Um, so it's <laughs> it's a real problem to be sacked from something. Um, uh, uh, so we went through why he was sacked. And I'd love to do a book on the Omen series as well um, because that huh. needs a kind of a, the, the trilogy. The Omen trilogy needs its own thing. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, Jason spent a lot of time thinking about, how, you know, the film industry and the finances behind it. And, you know, Jason, I don't know if you've spent any time on completion bonds and uh, some of those things. I, I don't have a I don't have any completion bond history in my in my life, but I'm willing to learn more. Uh, we should have a completion bond for every episode of Escape Hatch because I feel it might it might help me show up like show up on time. Maybe it would help with bedtime if Juniper knew that there was like you know insurance. We're gonna we're gonna put her name in stone somewhere. Uh, you know, yeah. if, if if bedtime goes sideways. All right. So the budget of this film was twenty to twenty seven million dollars. That's kind of a wide range, but worldwide box office forty six point five million dollars. Um, it came out in December of nineteen eighty. Jason, at the same time, nine to five, Popeye, mm. the jazz singer, mm. Raging mm. Bull, and Altered States. Mm. I feel of those, we've covered Popeye, mm-hmm. and I feel like Altered States is probably the only other one. It's coming that we soon. Are likely, that, yeah, we feel it feels likely to jazz jazz that. singer bonus episode when I, who could say <laughs> happening soon. All right, so we start this film off with Ming and Clytus. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, your majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. Will you destroy this uh, Earth? Later. I like to play with things a while before annihilation. (laughs) And then we have the beginning of the incredible theme, the piano and the bass line and the drum coming in. And then we have Flash, which is just unbelievable from the very beginning. Uh, And the first question that I had about this, this really looked like, uh, John, and then I got to it in the book. This really read to me like this was just like uh, an add-on scene. This is like Dino's Princess Irulan 
you know, opening of the book to kind of try and frame it. So did they, they essentially just felt like they didn't have enough. And was this Mike's call or was this Dino's call to, to add this opening segment? It was, it was both Mike and Dino's call on this because um, they just felt they needed something that was effectively, I suppose, like a Star Wars crawl, something that kind of sets things up a bit. Um, mm-hmm. there, were, there were some deleted scenes as well, the stuff with um, Flash and, 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 and the football team and, and so on. So it kind of needed a, a, a tightening up mm. at the front. So um, there wasn't a preview cards or any kind of reports available for me to see for the picture, but I suspect the folks at Universal were having a close look at it because they knew there was there was issues um, ar- around some of the production. I mean, Mike got sacked. I think he thinks twice, but certainly once by Mike, by Dino during the shoot. So they had these little rows, and he'd say, "Get out of here, you're sacked," and uh, "Well, I'm going anyway," wow. and then he'd be back after lunch. Um, so <laughs> th- th- there was a lot of tension on the picture. It was incredibly expensive, um, and yet there was no motion control. It was incredibly expensive, and yet why was the flying not as good as Superman the movie? The money was there. Right. You know, the money was definitely there. There's no question of that. I've seen the paperwork on that. So I was always fascinated over the years. Why Why are we not seeing, you know, similar composite shots that you'd see from The Empire Strikes Back? And why is the flying not nice and glorious like Superman the movie or Superman right. 2? Why isn't it? What's the explanation? Time. Time. They didn't yeah. have the time. They had the money. They didn't have the time. And they also had Superman. You have one guy flying or maybe in Superman 2, you have two or three. Here you've got eight guys up on, you know, on strings for hours and they have wings. Superman just had a cape. Uh, so it's a much more technically complex thing than what, you know, Superman was doing. It is, but if they'd gone that route, they would have needed maybe two or three years to have shot it. They couldn't have afforded to have spent that kind of money. Right. The spaceships were mostly flown on strings, on wires. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not as complicated the moves on the, on the ships as it was in, uh, let's say, The Empire Strikes Back. And oh, right. people felt that they were trying to recapture the, the Buster Crab era. They weren't. You know, some of the styling was certainly from that era, but they were looking to do something much more sophisticated. And Dino was very mm-hmm. frustrated by reviews that said, oh, just like Buster Crab, you've gone for kind of low-tech special effects. It's low budget. He was like, no, no, no. This is very expensive. It's film. high budget. <laughs> very, yeah. very high budget. So I think Dino was frustrated at different points that it was, it was getting away from the vision he had of creating a franchise of course sam jones behaved badly very badly um to his to his detriment and mm-hmm. and so had they gone with a second and third film sam wouldn't have been part of that you know where the mm. and I spoke to dino's wife martha de Laurentiis, who sadly left us now too um we were we were of the same view that uh, that sam wouldn't have rejoined for the second or third picture mm. Hmm. Mm. And and Jason, what was your take? So so we go, you know, we have hot hail raining down. Uh, I think this is the Isle of Sky uh, where yep. we're shooting this, and and he's getting into a plane with with uh, Dale um, and taking off. But you know, he's got the flash T-shirt, he's got the blonde hair. What's your what's your initial impression when you're seeing this unfold with no with no sort of previous experience? You know, the the one thing I knew for sure was that Flash Gordon was a football player. Like I, I somehow, I somehow was aware of that fact. And so like, Uh I didn't even know there was any part of this movie that was on earth. So I guess when the movie is like starting off and it is about, you know, a football player thinking he's like the most, you know, thinking he's like successful and a real hot shot in his field and like well-loved and like, you know, celebrity for being a football player. And then he gets like beamed up into this, 
extra galactic conflict and, you know, pantheon of characters where you realize he's but like a small, you know, a small person in a much broader divine uh, scale of uh, of drama. Mm -hmm. It reminded me a lot of Travis Kelsey dating Taylor Swift. <laughs> and who knows how the end come, you know, the end question mark. Uh, yeah, you know, how that, exactly. How, how that will all unfold. Well, yeah. I was, I was all on board to me, uh, you know, this film, it, it opens up, you know, there and kind of grounded, but immediately they're flying and he's hitting on Dale very hard. Um, very and hard. We, and we have these red clouds uh, that are very ominous. And we even have so Ming taking out the pilots. How did you how did you take that? Like, does Ming like have some kind of like projection projection system and he's just taking people out from wherever all over the earth, uh, kind of at the same time, playing with people? Well, well Ming's a magician, isn't he? You know, if we're in the longer yeah. cuts of the film, the deleted scenes, we can see he's actually a magician mm. in that true sense. So it's, I think it's it's meant to be black magic, but that all those edges are, 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 are rounded off in the final film. Right. But we do very quickly get to Zarkov's headquarters and we are, we are, you know, open on his assistant Munson. Jason, you recognized him, obviously. No, who's, oh, is, is Munson box from Logan's run? No, no, it's William Hootkins. Oh, episode four Raiders of the lost Ark, Batman, the Island of Dr. Moreau. Like this guy is a heavily watched character actor. What a run. Well, you can't you can't see his face though, right? Like, because he's got this mask on. No, 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 so no, 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 no. This is at Zarkov's place. Uh, that's Kleitus. Oh, at Zarkov's place. At Zarkov's place. At Zarkov's place. Zarkov's assistant. Yeah, the one that Flash runs over with the plane when he when he lands. <laughs> yeah, that guy has a rough exit from the movie. It's Porkins. Okay. So right. he's he's contractually obligated to die on screen. That's that's part yeah, of his. Yeah, uh, for sure. But what do you think about Topol? Check the angular vector of the moon. Love Topol in this movie. Topol absolutely crushes. He seems to be having such a good time. Um, and I'm I'm glad. I'm just glad for him. He seems to have the best time acting. Like, just really seems to enjoy what he's doing. Um, and, yeah, just has a great, just has a great time. So I was very I was animated delivery. It. Very animated. Yeah. So, John, the question is, it was Topol a secret agent for Mossad? Did your research no, cover life. that? <laughs> oh, in real life. Yeah, he was. Yeah. As it turns in real out. Life, I, yes. I, 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 he a, was. A lot of people. Yeah. A lot, a lot, yes, he was. Yeah. So I spoke to Topol for the book. I didn't speak to him about his, his dealings with Mossad. But um, it's, it's surprising how many people in history, you know, Walt Disney himself, was, uh, wasn't he an FBI agent? Um, he had an FBI card, didn't he, Walt Disney? I'm sure. I'm sure yeah. he was. I yeah, did not know that. Yeah, yeah, I think it was the FBI or the CIA, and I'm pretty sure it was the FBI. Um, so huh. often, in, you know, people who can travel um, travel borders without um, being held up are often doing stuff for their governments. Mm. And uh, it, it, it wasn't that big a surprise for me that Topol was uh, was was involved with Mossad, but he wasn't the original choice. Warren Oates was the original choice um, to play Doctor Zarkov oh. here, and he couldn't he couldn't take the picture mm. on. And he was also offered a part mm. in um, Escape from New York as well. He couldn't take that on. So um, he was in his... Uh, oh, wow. Which his, one? His, Cabby? It was... Um, gosh, you're, I've, I only wrote the book. Um, I can't remember. I think it was <laughs> I think it was the Lee Van Cleef part. I think it was Hawk. So um, it's in my book. 
I don't know if I could picture Topol as Hawk. I think no, no, Lee Van no, Cleef no, is probably a better no, no, choice. Not, not Topol. It Warren oh, Oates. Oh, War- Warren okay. Oates. Yeah, yeah. Warren. So Warren Oates turned, had to turn down Escape from New York. But um, it's... Uh, <sighs> Yeah, for people who want to know more, they'll but they can buy the book. It's on the shelf above me for people who. <laughs> this is audio only, but it's up there. Incredible! But now I want to. Yeah. Now I want to see Topol as Hawk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, he did play a Bond yeah. villain, didn't he? He was in at the same time around that time. He was in For Your Eyes Only, um, mm. where he was he was pretty good. It's. Uh, I was just reviewing the Topol. He's, he's done lots of great work. Mm. Oh yeah, he was he was Columbo in For Your Eyes Only. Yeah, he really is great. He is, he's, he's he's a great class 2032. So he kind of tricks them to get onto his spaceship. Uh, Jason, who paid for that rocket? What's what's the deal? Is this like a public it's a beautiful private? rocket? Great, great set design on the rocket. I really loved. I was very into all the buttons and fidget, fidgety bits on this rocket. I thought it looked very cool. The launch out of the greenhouse looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the flares that they use, the different the white flares followed by the red flares, and uh, mm-hmm. just really really great. But to me. When they get into space and the music kicks in. It is so phenomenal. Um, And it is this blend. There's some guitar at the first that's kind of like space oddity. And then it very much goes into Evangelist Blade Runner synth style. And there's a lot in this soundtrack that reminded me of the Blade Runner. um, Soundtrack, but then you get into the drums. And so this it's so vibey and what i love about this film is there are so many long stretches with no dialogue and just action and flying and music um that sounds so incredible and then when you do get dialogue it's stuff like object in control rage passing the sea of fire (laughs) the sea of fire it's very evocative Mm -hmm. it's quite a mix of accents isn't it you've got you've got like german accents you've got uh (laughs) Spanish yeah, right, accents, right. you've got Italian, and it's 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 very different to if say George Lucas had made this, then he might have had a few right, Brits right. in there, of course, but it would be you, you'd have American accents in all your leading parts, so um, you wouldn't mm-hmm. have had Ornella Muti as a as a sultry Italian, right? Right, yeah, for sure. Oh man, well we'll get to her in just a second. Mm. So now they land on the planet Mongo, and this is where we meet the guards. The sound effects uh, that the guards make. And then this concept of a gauntlet gun is just completely insane and wonderful. Um, it works so well. And for me as a kid, this is where the movie really started. Uh, That's kind of like the beginning part. I was just like, let's get this over with and then let's get right. let's get into the action. Um, but now we have the Court of Ming. And just Ming. the courtiers, incredible. the costumes. Um, my, my note on this was like, you know, there's obviously we've covered it. I've talked about a lot this unknown imponderable of what would have happened what would have looked like if Yodorovsky had made Dune and I don't really know if we need to wonder like this is what it would have looked like like it would have 100% looked like the court of Ming mm. like both in terms of color palette scope weirdness oddly sexual deviancy like you know it would have like this is like what Yodorovsky would have done for sure it like looks like it looks like you know holy mountain um but with like more money um Mm. this this whole court of ming situation 
I agree. Yeah, there's definitely a fetishization here, isn't there? You know, you've got the European sensibilities where they want to fetishize everyone, put young nubile people in as little clothes right. as possible, like in Barbarella. Um, right. Look on, 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 on Clash of the Titans, the censors were more bothered that Medusa was topless um, than they right, were about right. the beheading scene that happens. So European censors, no problem right. that she's topless with her, you can see her nipples. Um, American censors was like, you can see her boobs, you know, but what about the beheading? Right. That's okay. Um, so no, I think there's a different sensibility and it's probably one of the reasons you guys may have found the VHS or TV screenings of it quite restricted because there's lots of mm-hmm. swearing in this film. People going around sh- shouting, bloody bastard. You know, uh, Timothy Dalton yeah. keeps saying that. Every, every time you see him, right. you shake his hand and he goes, bloody bastard. <laughs> but um but there's yeah yeah you can't make it family friendly you can't kind of dress people up digitally like it's i didn't realize having never seen this movie until two days ago that i had always thought this movie came out much earlier like i didn't have this as a 1980 movie I had this as like a mm. pre-star wars movie like a 1976 movie is i guess what i would have guessed um and mm. even though rocky horror is in fact even before that, it's 1975. Like, I thought that this movie influenced Rocky Horror. Like, I didn't realize that <laughs> Rocky Horror was five years before this movie. Um, and, like, the whole... The Rocky Horror of it is a whole thing. Like, it's it's broadly camp. There's a blonde weirdo, like, at the center of it. Um, there's a lot of, you know, high-waisted panties um you know it's there's like there's a lot of like there's a lot of that both aesthetically um and campiness wise um and i was really surprised about that as a rocky horror aficionado that spoke to me would it surprise you jason to learn that riffraff from rocky horror is in this film is he yeah richard o'brien he's in there yeah absolutely yeah he is baron's yeah he's the guy that that plays the flute uh and goes down and gets flash makes sense there you go. <laughs> yes. Story checks out. Uh, I can see that. I mean, it's always interesting. These the the uh, as you move from decade to decade, there are these interesting kind of inflections, and I could see how you could picture this as being uh, somewhat earlier. Um, but it just it to me it looks so good, and it's similar. We talked about the costumes in um, Never Ending Story, um, and just kind of how creative they are. So let's just go ahead and do the shout out now um, to the production designer and costume designer Danilo Donati, um, who worked on among other things Romeo and Juliet. Danilo Donati, yeah, that we all saw in high school. Uh, he worked mm, on Red Sonia, the, the Zeffirelli version. Yes, yes, mm. and then ultimately did uh, towards the end of his career, Life Is Beautiful. So so like, boom, oh, okay. um, really nailing it. But so he is just a force of nature in this film. The costumes, top to bottom, whether it's Ming, you know, making his dramatic entrance that he that he has, or Aura, um, when we see her for the first time as she's coming there, just everyone looks stunning. Mm, that's great. Yeah, the costumes were built to last, so were the sets. This is where this franchise starts to come in. You know, everyone was saying these are so heavy, but yeah, Dino wasn't a fool. He wasn't allowing money to just be poured down the drain. It's because he expects to get three pictures out of these, you know, out of the sets, um, out of the costumes, out of the models as well. You know, it was a, mm. it was a, there was a three picture plan in place here. Mm. And it, you can kind of see it in the, uh, in the almost the extravagance, if you like, of what's being built. If we think of Star Wars and the creatures, and how the stormtroopers 
papers were held together with bits of sellotape and so on. Um, and they were taped up because everything was just enough for the cameras. Um, here, things were, were really mm -hmm. built to last. And the costume shots we have in the book of new photography of the costume show them. They, they still look um, as if they were just made yesterday. They look fantastic. You've done great work on that. Really incredible, really incredible. Mm. Um, and we're starting to see here very quickly that the world building is actually very effective. So we see the princes are kind of um, jockeying uh, to get position. We see Princess Aura, uh, Jason leading Deep Roy uh, around. Oh, yeah, Deep Roy. Yeah, I know. I picked it up. Yeah, we're happy to see him again since, uh, since we saw him last on NeverEnding Story. I think we mentioned on NeverEnding Story that we would see him again here. So mm -hmm. the circle is complete. In a kind of, but it's a master and servant fetishization again, isn't it? Because of the chain around his neck and yes. so on. You know, it's, it's totally. Yeah, Mm. Look, look, we should we should just take a moment here and say <laughs> that this is one of the kinkier movies we've ever watched on Escape Hatch. Like this is like there's a ton of like, you know, bondage stuff of like people being beaten. There's a bunch of master slave stuff like this is a kinky movie, which is maybe another reason why we didn't have it on VHS um, <laughs> when I was a kid. This is the, 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 my parents knew to keep this away. <laughs> I mean, it seems great. It certainly worked for me uh, when I was, you know, watching this as a ten-year-old, almost eleven-year-old child. Uh, this this film, like, I couldn't quite understand what was happening, you know, when Ming was kind of examining Dale, um, you know, or you know, what quite everything that was happening with Aura. But um, mm -hmm. it, I definitely, I was. I was enjoying uh, what I was seeing, but also it very quickly, like it doesn't take long. You know, you have this quick introduction and then boom, we have this football fight. Yeah. The music and the fighting, it's just awesome. I love mm -hmm. this song and I love this mm -hmm. scene. It's, it's really great. Agreed. Yeah, sorry. The music is Howard Blake as well as Queen. Often people just assume it's Queen who did all the music. Yeah. But, uh, Howard Blake came in, did a lot of the orchestral stuff. So the orchestral stuff is being mixed here with what Queen were doing. Mmm. Yeah, I wanted to call that out. Um, you know, he he had not done a bunch of other big feature things. He did the original Avengers uh, television show. Mm. Um, I couldn't find other stuff by Howard Blake that I recognized, but I will absolutely say his score is as, to me, as important uh, as what Queen is doing uh, throughout the film. And I'll call it out when we get to some of the other ones. Um, but even right here where we go to um, Flash's execution, and we have, uh, you know, Flash with the, the metal spiked helmet. Jason, there's, there's your first kind of fetish, super fetish. Yeah, I mean, that's, this is just a straight... This is just a straight scene they're doing down in the dungeon with the the spiked helmet and whatnot. And the leather speedo. They're going for it down there. And there's also like people, there's also people like in bondage, like all around the back wall and stuff like just that. Just some other, some other gimps they have like lined up. I was like, okay, like maybe there's a reason why this, this film was not shown to me as a four-year-old. Yeah. Here's a thought, guys. Think about this. The reason Nicholas Rogue left the film that um, in 1978, Dino Sack, Nick Rogue, was because the storyboards he created were too explicit. You can see that artwork here in the book. He was going to oh, be much more great. adult. It was going to be much more about using sex as control and using... Um, huh. there's, some, there's some spaceships here that looked... Um, 
there's there's very phallic looking spaceship here on page what's the page number 60 um and it looks something like an orchid with something coming out of it um, interesting and it's part of the uh, hawkman's uh city oh. it just looks really odd i mean if you look at it it's just like mm. um, interesting <laughs> so this is much more of a pg version of what nick rogue intended could have so goodness knows what right. certificate it could have ha- could have happened you know if uh, <laughs> yeah probably never been released yeah Oh man! So a lot of these are, are are leftovers. So I think there's a residue of what what Nick Rogue did, and they spent so much money anyway. And I think everyone was in that in that headspace, right? Creatively, well, I think that's the magic of this, right? That you have these different tonal pieces. You have this very sexy and uh, and bondagey stuff, and then you also have like a lot of humor, and um, and then just kind of like in these in these cool environments. I will say that uh you know Flash marching out for his execution, this drums and uh and the music and then once the gas is released uh and we see him we see him struggling and then dying. Um the music here perfectly captures the feeling of a serial, right? Like it is that big cliffhanger that you would tune in next week um, to see what is going to happen. But certainly I uh, as the first time I saw this, it really struck me that they just killed Flash Gordon. Like, I just couldn't believe uh, that that had happened. Um, but Jason, what do you think about this casket? Flash Gordon, Earthling, executed by Ming. Look like a nice casket. It's a, Well, in general, I think, I think the execution and death of Flash Gordon, they really put a lot into it for a traitor i mean they're like a beautiful execution <laughs> chamber we have to say i mean just like a really i mean a really nice piece of design um uh yeah and like yeah gave him a beautiful send-off for some for someone who was killed as a traitor <laughs> and then and then aura wakes him with a kiss right so we have a little inversion of the uh you know prince yeah, charming that's good i like that Th- and that was really cool and then her her just delivery because i like you uh i i just I don't know. She's she's something uh, something special for for me. I I like her. I think <laughs> I think I think she's good. <laughs> Again, this maybe is like I'm straying into my Aspen Extreme bag again, where I'm just like, are we sure he picked the right one? Are we sure he picked the right, are we sure he picked the right lady to end up with her? Aura is a princess. She's like, you know, she comes from a very distinguished family. Uh-huh. Uh, she seems into him, has a very forward fashion sense, really knows what she likes to wear. Um, she wants to have a good time. Like, I don't I don't know. I'm not seeing a lot of downside with Princess Aura. <laughs> I like your take. And she strokes his body, doesn't she? She strokes him whilst he's in the castle. Oh, yeah. She strokes him from head to toe. <laughs> and he's quite coy then. Sure All of a sudden, does. he's quite coy about taking off the leather shorts. And uh, she yeah, says to him, exactly. Uh, exactly. Uh, don't worry, I won't look. And she doesn't look. Or does she? She looks in <laughs> yeah. the reflection, doesn't she, of the door. Uh, she does in the mirror. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can imagine parents in, in cinemas kind of thinking, this isn't Star Wars. What have I brought my child to? You know, because no, for there's sure. so yeah. many beats here that you would think are inappropriate if you had, say, a 10-year-old or a 7-year-old with you. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they, she, she helps him to escape. And on the way we see Hans is getting reprogrammed by Clytus um, and by Ming. So I do like this notion. Ming says, let's, let's get into Max von Sydow, who this was the main role for me, for my childhood, the main role that I knew him for, which is not where he started, obviously. But he says, every thousand years, I test every system in the universe. I test it with strange occurrences, earthquakes, floods. If they take it as natural occurrences, I spare it. 
But if the Hand of Ming is recognized in these events, I judge that system dangerous to us. I call upon the great god, Dizan, and for his greater glory and our mutual pleasure. I destroy it utterly. And obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For sure. I mean, that's an oath. That's an oath. That's a sacred oath. Real yeah, that's good. All the, the elements of a sacred oath you would ever need. Really good. But they use this They use this beam to reprogram Jason. They're taking his memories out. Yeah. So and how my about- My mind is all I have. How about the, co- the core memory of losing his wife who drowned after she was thrown into the pool at a party by her friends as a joke? Not funny. That's- <laughs> don't, don't mess around. Don't, not funny. Not a good joke. That's a tough one. <sighs> it would be oh. an amazing like thing if like this movie like did like an extensive flashback where they go to the party. It's all on Earth. It's shot in a totally different style, like in a non-campy, like very more you know verite style of what the party mm. was like. And like she falls in the pool. We see his like anguish, and then we cut back to that memory being sucked out. That would be wild. That would be a version of this movie that would have some real artistic leaps. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, picturing like a, uh, you know, a prestige format Flash Gordon television show, uh, would have time to, to, to get into that. Yeah. Um, flying with Aura, this scene, I just love so much her ship again, as you describe it, it's a, it's a model, it's on wires. There's no motion capture, um, in this film. Um, I was certainly very, uh, you know, again, kind of caught up in this and it's mm-hmm. so funny when they do the telepathy gag where he's talking to dale while he's making out with aura and trying to keep it straight oh my god this girl's really turning me on i I didn't quite get that think it again forget i thought it it wasn't about you over what (laughs) this girl's really turning me on yeah the think the listen that's not a that's that's not a time to be engaging in that sort of activity is when you're on the, the, the Thinko cast to yes. would be paramour. Terrible. Mm. Mm. I was really, I have to just say like, I like at this point I was just like, this movie is just like, there's a lot of weird, sexy business <laughs> in this movie, you know, just like for, for like, uh, you know, I'm trying to like I guess Excalibur maybe is got is maybe the equivalent where there's a, and maybe Conan maybe it's just Laurentis <laughs> like where it's you know where where it's got like you know where like because you just don't get this in in your crawl or your you know you don't get this in Dune like Dune is like the most sexless movie in the world, like comparatively. And you don't get this in star Wars at all. There's, you know, three kisses in the history of star Wars. Mm-hmm. And I guess you would say like, some of that is like an American, you know, kind of puritanical, you know, but there's another aspect, which is like, it seems like they intended this movie for adults. Like they intended this movie for an older audience. And we just never got a period of genre filmmaking for adults uh that lasted for any period of time hmm. um so it's it's interesting to see that in these like glimpses of what what might have been tried i can't think of anything that's happened in the last 50 years what's your take john how did how, did you have any sense of that from mike 
Yeah, there is. Yeah. So when I spoke to Mike about that and about Dino's kind of uh, European and Italian sensibility, if you think of Barbarella, you know, Barbarella, if you mm, watch yeah. that film, think it's like a female Flash Gordon. Actually, that's got some incredibly explicit sequences in there, the way she's yeah. dressed, the spaceships, everything else and so on. So it is kind of a running theme in Dino's science fiction films. Um, and incidentally, you, you talked about Max von Sydow there. Of course, he was Dr. Keynes in um, in June, mm-hmm. in Lynch's June, and he was in, right. uh, of course, Conan. So he's kind of a, he became a stalwart sort of Dino De Laurentiis player, um, even though he's a highly regarded actor in his own right, the seventh seal and everything else. He was happy to, to, to bounce along on Dino's. The trajectory of going from Ingmar to Dino is, you know, to book into your career is pretty amazing. Yeah, pretty amazing. It is, you know, and uh, and people gather around Max von Sydow to get advice. And But he talked about being very anxious playing the part of Ming. He didn't quite know how to play him. He couldn't quite find the role. Uh, he had a chat with um, with the Hawkman chief. And who gave him a, a kind of a, a steer on what he should do, you know? So it's it, it was difficult. I think he he realised that he was playing a magician, and uh, and Brian Blessed said to him, "That's your role here. You're kind of like a magician." And once they had that chat, he was like, "Ah, oh, I have it. Hmm. I have it now." Um, but of course, in recent times, I've been speaking to journalists about the um, the depiction of a South Asian man because he looks like he's mm-hmm. he's he's, he's the, the, the makeup and so on and, uh, and and whether that's cultural appropriation it's not because no one in china dressed like ming so it can't be cultural right. appropriation but uh mm. i think if dino was here now he'd say look i'm trying to find the best actors for the best parts mm. but um you know this film has has many markers between there's profanity the, the, the censors at the time had quite blunt tools for measuring whether something was appropriate for children or not. The, the set of profane words were typed out, so you know what they were and what you could or couldn't say. And of course, sexual contact is, is something that can be clearly defined. Here you have stuff which is innuendo, inappropriate dressing perhaps, in a cold environment, not wearing something woolly enough. Um, the, 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 at now there is right. <laughs> a much more um, ability to, to, to pin things down with the senses and what you can and can't do. At that time there wasn't. And so I think when Universal received the picture and then they were anxious about the release and people were very cool to it, reviewers felt that it, it was a, a form of depravity coming through the side door to our children <laughs> via this sort of entertainment. And particularly from Europe, Dino wasn't trusted because he wasn't an American. He was an Italian. Uh-huh. You know, he wasn't an American Italian. That's something very different. Um, he was an Italian Italian. And so that came with, with certain baggage and so on. So, yes, I think he did bring that old world Italian style to things and a, and a kind of nonchalant attitude to sex. But I think the film's all the better for it. Well, they clearly they they clearly pulled the punches enough, right, to make this a PG film, as opposed to Conan, where they went all the way, uh, you know, with you know giant orgies and 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 make made it fully explicit, as opposed to uh, the innuendo aspects. But it certainly works. Um, and and you know, for me, Dale escaping, she's able to drug uh, one of the other girls with. Um, the the drink which has no name but jason comes from the galaxy of pleasure that seems like a pretty chill galaxy oh my gosh how many <clears throat> how many parsecs away is the galaxy of pleasure i wonder <laughs> how do i get there uh but she's like the sound effects as she's killing these guys 
and she's carrying her heels with her, which she's not wearing because they're too impractical. That little bit was really funny, but she does like Neo cartwheel, one-handed cartwheel moves, like uh, from the lobby scene in the Matrix. I was like, this is incredible. Mm-hmm. Clytus, can we just talk about Clytus? Uh, he is such a player in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he's got stuff going with Ming. He's playing with uh, General Kala. She definitely is in love with him and wants to be a part of it. Um, and what he really wants is to have Aura. So he's looking for the ability to do that. And so he says that Flash was released by a traitor who he already knows is Aura. What traitor? I have my suspicions, but I need your authority to pursue them my way. Stop at nothing. No matter to whom the trail leads. I said at nothing. <laughs> and then we have Clytus smelling his hanky. <laughs> so, what? like, what's the deal? I mean... Listen, we all have a security blanket. We've all been through that phase in our life. You can't say that, you know, you can't relate to it. <laughs> oh, what was that actor's name, John? Oh, um, it was Peter Wingard who played Clytus. He had a, a wonderfully fruity English accent. There we go. And he played Jason King on television here in the UK. I think you may have received mm. that in the US. But um, in, 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 mm. in a sort of a, a sequence that um, was never, that didn't appear in the film, it kind of shakes the whole kind of DNA tree of, um, of Flash Gordon. Um, Clytus, um, we think, was a Ming clone that was still growing. There's a deleted scene at the end of the film where oh. Ming, when he disappears, appears somewhere else, surrounded by skulls. That picture is in my book. That's the first time it's been published. And yeah. uh, the, the theory is mm-hmm. that um, Ming has has had a series of lives, like a cat having nine lives and so on. And as part of his work as a magician, he he um, he's managed to clone himself and that Clytus was a Ming clone that's still growing. Um, and that's why he needs to sleep in the chamber on the ship and was covered in a protective armour. Um, and Ming was creating backups of himself in case he got killed. And the idea is that at the end, uh, when he picks up the ring and he goes to another place, it's another Clytus who become the new Ming. Um, so Max von Sydow would return in the sequels. Um, but that's that's mm. kind of a, a broad interpretation of, of a few photographs of that deleted scene. Frustratingly, the footage has probably been destroyed. So um, it's a real shame deleted oh, scenes no. from films that are pre sort of 1978, 79. Negative trims aren't really kept. Yeah. Um, it, there's, there's a whole... There's a whole kind of episode we could talk about neg trims and interpositives and neg cutting and so on. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's always fascinating to find out what could have been and what should have been. Um, hmm. And yeah, so Clytus potentially was was a, a Ming clone being grown, and there was lots of them. That's it's basically in episode nine. <laughs> somehow uh, Ming returned. <laughs> somehow Ming returned. Like it's basically the the Snoke Palpatine. Yes. Origin story. Yes. What the hell? Yeah. George Lucas, have an original idea for once. My God. JJ. Um, all right, let's get into the kingdom of Arborea. So I, I do like the fact that this film just, it moves uh, really yeah. quick, right? They get there, Flask is executed, they get him out of there, they go to Arborea and they start building up the team. So this initiation ritual, the wood beast... It looks so good. The concept of sticking your whole, your hand somewhere scary and having to wait and see if you're going to live or die was so intense. And Have him, you seen that anywhere before? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and when he gets hit, 
and says, send me on my way. Spare me the madness. I will. Uh, and so Baron uh, kills him off um, and then rejects Aura bringing her flash and has him lowered into the swamp. Um, so I just want to talk briefly about the matte. Shut up, Bogpot. Shut- well, we'll get there uh, just a second. Yeah. But the matte paintings. And you wrote a bit about Barry Nolan's pioneering but unused digital compositing. So can you just describe what that was that didn't end up getting used? Yes. So it's, um, again, it was partly to do with, with time on the picture. The idea of putting together something um, in the camera and you lose a generation when it goes down, um, when you pass film through an optical printer, Barry had come up with a process whereby you could do stuff almost in a single, um, a single take and, and sort of tilt and pan on the matte painting. But there wasn't time to set these elaborate um, sequences up. And, and they had problems with the Arborea set as well, because um, Danilo Donati, the, who built the sets, didn't allow for any of it to float. So they couldn't move any of it to get the uh, the cameras in and out. So they were stuck. It was like a real forest. So they had to um, go back as far as they could or go as close as possible. So they didn't get the, as much use out of that set as, the, as they intended. But, I mean, there's great use of matte paintings in the film throughout. Um, Barry Nolan told me about um, Frank Vanderveer and his fabulous blue screens. The largest blue screen ever was created for this picture for various sequences, particularly around the men's mm. uh, battle at the end. Hawk so there were men. lots of kind of yeah. tech firsts, mm-hmm. but for viewers, they didn't see that necessarily. They saw the fact that the ships weren't as, as elaborate as Star Trek, the motion picture or Empire Strikes Back, which would have been the default measure by then and Superman's right. uh, one and two um, in terms of flying. So um, no, it's a shame Barry didn't get to, to use some of that. Barry is a stalwart of Dino's. He'd worked on, King Kong. He'd worked. Um, we'd basically worked on all of Dino's films, June as well, of course, and and one of the Conans. Mm. So uh, it's um, it's always the mm. case though when you come up with something new, technically new. If you can't get a result fairly fast to see it in rushes or dailies the next day, then it's very difficult for everyone to wait for you to be ready. Um, particularly sometimes you have to strike a set to build a set. Right. Right. This, I mean, th- these sets to me are incredible, and and the matte paintings take them to an entirely different level. Mm. But we have this whole quick thing, you know, Flash gets tricked into going into the temple, and then uh, he has to do the, the wood beast, uh, so we have an additional showdown there. He psychs out uh, the Baron, and then goes on the run, and this is where Jason... Bogpod. Bogpod. He falls into the quicksand. So again, quicksand is the most dangerous thing of our of our youths. Yeah, it really. We really were training us for something. They were training us to fight against communism in the quicksand. Those were the two <laughs> things we were being trained for: was to resi- resist our communitarian impulses through struggle in a non-Newtonian <laughs> fluid of some sort. Was he when he climbs out and he thinks he's safe, uh, and then of course is attacked by the giant spider? Was that the threat of communist Cuba? Or? That was the that was the that was communism. That was the mm. insurgent threat of communism <laughs> in in Southeast Asia. The sound effects are incredible of that beast uh, and the the legs coming and the spiking and then the green slime that he's in. It just all looks amazing. Um, but they now get taken to Sky City um, for the big showdown. And I just want to give a quick uh, jump to one of the best lines in the movie because we'd be in big trouble from Corey if we didn't say it. And that is Clytus torturing 
aura mm-hmm. and her, you know, the, Jason, we got the whips going. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the, the, the explicit part. And then he says, Bring me the boar worms. <laughs> the boar No! Not the boar worms! Not the boar I mean, this is like, like, just the set design of, like, we're going to hold you down with, like, uh, restraints that are hands. Yeah. Uh, I mean, come on. This is just some, this is just someone putting on screen what they wanted to see that day. Like, this is very specific. This is a very specific aesthetic. And like, you know, I don't know if that's Dino. I don't know if that's, uh, the, the, uh, uh, production designer, but you know, they had, they had notions of what they wanted here. This is, this is a, it's it's an audience of people that later bought the James Spader movie, Maggie Gyllenhaal movie, The Secretary, and have watched it a lot, <laughs> is all I'm saying. Now we know this is the favorite film of uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, right? This was- yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the yeah. flexing leather glove. Yeah. All right, so we have a big uh, trial combat, uh, and so this fight scene between Baron and Flash, where they're on a platform, the platform goes back and forth, we have spikes coming up out of the platform, we have whips, early 80s, a very big uh, time for whips. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, It's just phenomenal as a child this all was completely real to me like those were deadly poisonous spikes and um it's so well done there was no stuntmen involved they they did that themselves so what um it was quite risky yeah there was no stunt players so um normally for a wide shot and there was plenty of wide shots they could have shown somebody else taking a slam and those were rubber spikes but they were actually they were potentially quite dangerous because if you fell on them, it's like anything that's rubber. If you fall on it hard enough, it can go go through you. Um, the, the rubber had to stay pointy, so it had to have a certain amount yeah. of rigidity. And um, you know, just I'm just looking at the pictures now while I'm talking to you. You know, it was crazy what they did, but there wasn't time to cover it with. Um, with stunt players as well. I mean, the, the, for example, the sets, the, the whole thing is a, pr- is a pre-light, the, the sets. So th- that's why it sometimes has the look of a TV movie. It, it's not, this mm. sequences and setups, not individually lit. So the DOP who'd worked on Star Wars, actually, um, he'd done a great job here. But when you look at any of the uh, Gil Taylor, Gilbert Taylor, British DP. Yeah. Also did Dr. Strangelove, The Omen, and Langella's Dracula. That's like, right. just incredible films. Absolutely, yeah. It, absolutely. He paints with lights. He was, he was wonderful. So to ask someone of his stature to do a pre-light, and a pre-light means when you walk onto the set, there's no freestanding lights. Everything's lit from the grid above you. That's what happens in TV sitcoms huh. and soaps and shows like Dynasty or Dallas that would have been shot on 35mm. And what it does is it huh. can actually give you a, um, a a flatness to the image as well. But they did that because of speed. They needed to get through the shot list. There weren't many setups. Mm-hmm. They needed to ha- kind of hammer through it. And, you know, this is what frustrated Mike Hodges. You know, he's a director of some standing. He wasn't brought on board just to to basically shopping list each day, a series of shots. Mm-hmm. The storyboards went out the window. We have these fantastic storyboards that are in the book. And Mike said to me, yep, yeah, I never saw most of those because there wasn't even time to look at them. He had a director's chair. He said he never put his ass in the chair once because he was standing the whole time. He said he never, there was no real tea break, mm. or lunch break. We were just hammering through, hammering through. And in the end, we ended up tearing pages out of the script just to stay on schedule. <laughs> 
So, you know, not to put stunt players with Tim Dalton and Sam Jones, you know, if either one of them had had an accident, that would have really messed things up. Um, and, and, and potentially, even if the spike didn't go through them, you could easily twist your ankle in that setup. I mean, that's a real... Um, sure. That's a... Yeah, and it was quite a drop as well. I mean, it's, if if you see the edge of that spinning table, and yeah, I think yeah, 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 boxes yeah. below, but it, it's it's quite. I'd say it's about fifteen twenty foot drop. <laughs> Easy twist your ankle. It would have been worth it. It would have been. I this reminded me of. I don't know if we've we've talked about it on the pod before, but have we talked about the Cirque du Soleil? Well, it's not Cirque du Soleil. It's it's a Cirque du Soleil spinoff show uh, called Ka. Uh, that ran for a while at the MGM. Is that the one with the wall? Exactly. I it did see a, it. Yeah, it a, yeah. It's got a it's got a platform similar to the one that is in this shot, but significantly bigger. And it's on a articulating arm such that it can be horizontal. It can tilt up and down in any on any direction, and then it can raise completely vertically. Um, and at one point during the show. Um, spikes come out of it. It's like meant to be like people are firing arrows at the wall and then characters are using the spikes that pop out to like climb the wall and then the spikes start to retract back in um, as they scramble up the side. It is thrilling. It is one of my favorite shows. I absolutely love it. Um, so yeah, hold, uh, hold that's on. what it reminded me of. Hold on. Ka. Wait, wait. Is it connected? Come with me. What about Flash Gordon... The movie, <gasps> the, the Las Soleil Vegas. Show? Yes. yes, yes, you're in. This is crap. <laughs> this is actually easy to sell because there's enough sex in it. Yes, that, like you could easily just do it through like the costumes, like through storyboards of the costumes alone. Done. Um, and there'd be lots of stuff. This is I, how does this not happen? How <laughs> it feels like this is such a good idea that this month. Let me. Let's, well, I'm, I'm nervous talking about this on the podcast because I feel like this is too good of an idea. <laughs> Uh, get Mr. Cirque on the phone out there. Oh my yeah. God. Uh, so, so I do love this moment where flash rescues Baron. Um, and it's a very earnest moment where you go. I follow. And this is the beginning of forging, um, the alliances, but in the end, uh, you know, Ming blasts sky city after flash rejects his offer to be the king of, the, of earth as a moon of Mongo. Um, and so he has to escape on the flying cycle. Jason, guess who designed that flying cycle? Who did incredible artwork for Jodorowsky's Dune? Not Mobius. Not Mobius. Who Chris did it? Foss. Chris Foss. That makes Chris sense. Chris Foss. There we go. Once Here, again, this, this movie is Jodorowsky's Dune. This is the most realistic, <laughs> well-conceived version of Jodorowsky's Dune that you're ever going to get. And people should be happy with it. Mm. So now we have the final battle where we have, uh, you know, uh, the ship is out there, uh, you know, they're sending out uh, to go get, uh, um, you know, Flash Gordon approaching, dispatch War Rocket Ajax, like these are all classic lines of my childhood uh, and adulthood. But them coming through the clouds, we're seeing Volton's forces dive! Um, and they're all coming down and starting. When they say stop engines, repel borders, and that song drops. I can hear it right now. You are hearing it right now. It is incredible. That song is amazing. And the work that Queen 
and Howard Blake put in for this film, like, it cannot be understated how much they carry this film. But they weren't the first choice. Wait, Mike Hodges wanted, uh... Who was the first choice? Pink Floyd. Oh, that would have been good, though. Yeah, Pink Floyd was the first choice. And when uh, Queen came to visit the sets, Mike had Pink Floyd blaring through some speakers um, just to get the... Uh, the, the cast and the crew kind of vibed up to to what it was going to be. And in comes Dino with uh, Freddie and the boys. And it's like, oh, that's embarrassing. A bit awkward. <laughs> Turn that off. Yep, exactly. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> that's amazing. It would have kind of been, it would have kind of been a good version. <laughs> like the, 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 the Pink Floyd version would have kind of slapped. I feel um, <laughs> like the, like, I think what you get, I think what you get with, the reason Queen's very appropriate is because it sort of sells the rock opera-ness of it. Mm-hmm. But I think I think a full descent into like psychedelic prog rock would have would have also been would have been a good move. I would like to see it. I would like to run it twice. If it had been five years earlier, I could see it working. But now, you know, mm. we're into the eighties and so we gotta sort of put the prog right. rock aside and and embrace the more mainstream, right? That is one thing we haven't talked about is like with all the glitteringness, like all the, sh- uh, like all the, the, you know, there's like all these like lens flares and like little sparkly bits and like everyone looks flushed and has like, you know, dilate, like, you know, has like their, eye- their, their pupils like look like they, you know, could cut glass. This movie is coked <laughs> to the gills. Like this movie is like a real, is, is, is a real entry in our pantheon of coked out. <laughs> Um, movie triumphs um, <laughs> for sure. So, in that sense, you might be right that Queen is the more appropriate aesthetic mm. uh, foundation. Mm. While they're fighting the battle out uh, and you know capturing War Rocket Ajax, we have Aura leading a rescue from behind. Pick that up, would you? Um, and getting Baron and Zarkov. See, she's a good one. She's great. She's a, she's the key to the whole. And movie. she has changed, right? Like she, you know, she's crying now. And exactly, and she goes on a journey. She does. So um, when they need to hack. Uh, the code, Zarkov says, ha, I thought it was one of the prime numbers of the Zeman series. Yeah. So, so Jason, talk to us about the prime numbers of the Zeman series, please. We're not going to cover this today. We're not going to cover <laughs> this today. This is, people can go, people go ask uh, an AI about the Riemann hypothesis. I'm not, gonna, I'm not doing it. <laughs> All right. You can't ask this of me. I think it's, I think the Riemann hypothesis, is this like not one of the, the, like the, million dollar unsolved problems in mathematics like it's like I don't know. hardest problems in math next week on escape hatch the mandelbrot set i think this is like this is like this is not for us today okay all right we got it that's fine uh we cut from there to dale and ming's wedding we have queen playing the wedding song is great yeah that's really good but it's especially great when it transitions to the minor key version of it it's just awesome yeah but at the end of the day, we have Zarkov and Baron. They rip the amateur off that guy's face. That's a great jump scare moment. Yeah, just, just like the sound Wait, that did. Did you skip skip over who the officiant is in the wedding? Or are we not to that yet? Uh, we're just getting to that. Uh, we're okay. just getting to I'll, that I'll just hold now. My, hold my powder. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So we have Kala getting killed and her black blood. Just kind of like the sound that Brody. it's making as it's going there. But now we are at the wedding with the officiant. You promise to use her as you will? Certainly. Not to blast her into space? Until such time as you grow weary of her. I do. <laughs> it's very romantic. Who was that, Jason? 
The officiant is Philip Stone, who in the same year that Flash Gordon came out, 1980, also appeared as the caretaker Grady in the Shine Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Um, so what a year of movie making this gentleman had Grady. Uh, to appear in both this and it's in the bathroom scene where Jack Nicholson con- confronts the ghost of Grady who says like, Oh, I had two girls that were very willful and I had uh, to discipline them. I was like, you know, just uh, right now your wife is trying to, he's, he also drops the end bomb in that scene. Jesus. The, Nebraska, is it? Uh, what's Nebraska? The end bomb. <laughs> the no, N-word. Not, then words out to then words out to press. Okay, no, okay. Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah. Baron Baron knocks out the lightning shield. Fra- Flash comes in with a crash landing. Uh, and we have Ming getting spiked. Um, it's just awesome. And him losing his power uh and kind of, you know, ultimately vanishing into the ring, and then the floating head. Long, Long live, live Flash. Flash! You've saved your life. Have a nice day. Yeah! Yeah! Have a nice day. You could tell there's some questions of trying to figure out what was supposed to, how they wanted to end this film. They were clearly struggling a little bit, um, but Baron becoming the king, essentially, of Mongo, which, Jason, that could have been Flash if he had just pushed Baron off. Yeah. You know. It felt like it was going to be Flash. It was a, the line of succession is a little unclear. It's sort of like a, I mean, you know, like they're all usurpers at this point. I don't really know. I don't really know how this works. But now we have the Hawkmen flying. Thanks, Obama. Um, and then we have <laughs> the end question mark. And we go to credits. Yeah. Mm. What a picture. It's a full, it's a full plate. Mm. Absolutely amazing. It's interesting because like it's i it's an iconic movie it's worthy of great study i'm glad we covered it 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 does feel like it it it, it's interesting that it didn't have the generative impact on genre fiction that say you know your star wars does um and, and like it's like they were both casting around at the same time for a way of doing genre storytelling um and something in this Something in this world of movies that we love, whether it's the more adult version of Flash Gordon or like, you know, the more fantastical kids version of like, you know, Labyrinth or whatever, like we just kind of, we didn't, we didn't keep that one going. Like we didn't, Mm -hmm. we didn't find a way to, we didn't find a way to hold that one um, beyond like 1986 or or thereabouts. Mm. Um, and and I don't know why that is. I think that's right. Well, most franchises don't survive. Conan never survived. You know, Dark Crystal was a flop. Shining was a disappointment when it came out. had bad reviews. It was box office. Labyrinth was a flop. Um, You know, Kroll was a flop. Um, You know, the difficulty in trying to set a franchise alight. Dino had been trying to do it his entire career by buying into other franchises. He bought into Halloween at Halloween 2, Amityville at Amityville 2 and so on, <laughs> Evil Dead for the second one. Um, so Dino was always on the franchise hunt. All producers mm-hmm. are because it becomes like a license to print money. Look at Bond's um was basically saying mm. look at bonds because star wars was really an, an, an awkward franchise right. a bit like star trek every time a star trek movie was was commissioned the studio would say this is the last one so star trek 3 was going to be the last yeah. one when spock came back 
then he, they he did good box office right. and Nimoy wanted to direct again. He had a story and so on. But then Star Trek V, the final frontier, was called that because they wanted to bring it to an end. But because it was such a, uh, a, mm-hmm. a an awkward end, they decided to go yet one more time. The, un- the undiscovered country, which refers to death. They're, they're like, if you're dead, yes. this is definitely going to be the last one. We got to kill you guys off. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, which, which franchises were Cocoon was meant to be a franchise that didn't work. Um, Look at the Sting, Sting Two. You know, there's there are so many examples of franchises that um, have, have, have fr- franchise. It's hard to do. The second film. You know, Superman. Look, apart from Superman one and two, things went wrong for Superman three, Supergirl. Um, it's it, it's a tricky. Yeah. Supergirl, by the way, is on my list of books I want to write. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Peter O'Toole in an amazing swan song role. Yeah. Yeah. So many great things about that. It's interesting. I mean, even even Star Wars really, you know, only the first two are, are the greatest films, some of the greatest films ever made. Like, Jedi is okay, but then that was it. They never went back, um, you know, until whatever, uh, many, many, many years later, um, a couple decades later. So it's it's wild to think. It's hard. It is hard to have a franchise. Sorry, I was going to say one of the most successful franchises is Police Academy. <laughs> yes, of course. I know, I know. I mean, I'm not the a big goop. fan, but it, it, they just continually made them. They made money, so they kept making them. Police Academy. That's really funny. I'm not writing that book. That is not where. <laughs> that is not where I thought you were going. Uh, well, I will say all those flops that you listed; those are all of our films. Uh, so we celebrate them. Uh, we lift them up here on Escape Hatch. Let me ask you, John, if you had to cast one role in this film with Tilda Swinton, who would Tilda Swinton play? Um, rather cheekily, um, I might cast Tilda Swinton as Flash. Wow. Whoa. Wow, Very I like bold. that. Dang. That would be intense. I want to see her like, yeah. yeah, and you know, just like busting around, busting heads, doing football moves. Awesome. Jason, how about you? She'd be great as Prince Baron, right? In the Dalton role? Mm. Well, I think she would do great as like sort of like a smirking swashbuckling. Swashbuckler. Yeah, she would be great at that. I love it. I would put her as Voltan. I, I think she could make a real meal out of those. Dive! <laughs> Dive! <laughs> All right, you guys, we did it. Can we do some quick voicemails? Let's go. All right, yeah, here we go. Here is here is our first voicemail from one of our new segments. Oh. Jonesy's Corner. All right, here we go, Jonesy. <laughs> yeah. Escape Hatch, it's JLB here on assignment. Uh, this time not talking about uh, pushrod V8s of the 60s and 70s, or short-form Southern Chinese close-quarter martial arts. This time, I'm uh, talking about Queen, uh, the rock legends themselves, and their relation to movies. And uh, as everyone knows or may not know, uh, my one of my four faves on Letterboxd, my favorite social media uh, company, is Highlander, 1986, Russ Mulcahy, uh, scored by Queen, and... Actually, their 12th studio album, A Kind of Magic, exists as the official, unofficial soundtrack of that movie. Now, your movie you're talking about, Flash Gordon, is actually Queen's ninth studio album. And uh, a lot of people, you know what they ask me? 
uh, Goldie and H. They ask me, Jonesy, what's your opinion? Why is Queen scoring these sci-fi movies? And uh, really, the answer is no deeper than Queen is made up a bunch of nerds. Mm -hmm. I mean, Brian May is a astrophysicist, astrophysicist despite being a, a guitar god. Uh, he's an astrophysicist by degree, and Freddie Mercury is also an art major. Uh, he mm -hmm. got his de degree in art and graphic design. He designed all of uh, Queen's branding. Huh. And in the 60s and 70s, these kids growing up, they were nerds. They probably read Flash Gordon on the on the uh, the newspaper comic strip. So it huh. doesn't seem to me a far leap that a bunch of uh, nerdy nerds uh, were tapped to do nerdy nerd movies. Now, that being said, once you're done with this excellent episode of Escape Hatch, I'd like you all to go to A Kind of Magic, track seven, listen to the Kurgan's theme, and I'd like you to wear some kind of helmet or face shield because it's quite possible Brian May might shred your face off while listening. <laughs> uh, I love you all. Take care. Bye. Wow, Kurgan's theme is playing right now. That's great. Thank I you, do Jonesy. love. I do love the fact that when Jonesy was describing Highlander and how much he loved it, and it's his favorite, you know, one of his top four faves. He forgot to plug that he was on the Escape Hatch episode Highlander, nineteen eighty six. He was. He yes. was. And yeah, it was great. What a joy to have him, Jonesy. Thank you for dropping science as always. That was amazing. All right, here is our second voicemail. The truth sayer. Flash, ah, it's time for the truth sayer. Out of all of the wonderful, hammy, insane performances in this film, Brian Blessed's is probably my favorite. Here's three stories about Brian Blessed. Two of these are false. One is true. It's truth sayer time. Number one, in his youth, Brian Blessed was the Greco-Roman wrestling champion of Gloucester. Number two. At the time he achieved these feats, Blessed was the oldest person to have reached both the magnetic and geographical North Pole. Or is it number three? Blessed has attempted to climb Mount Kilimanjaro three times. All right, which one of those three stories is true? Wow. John, what do you think? Number two. Number two. Yeah, that's the one I was going to guess for, too. I feel that man yeah. likes an Arctic expedition. Yeah. I like in those, it. In those same pants that he was wearing in this movie. <laughs> All right, let's find out. All right, which one of those three stories about Brian Blessed is true? It wasn't number one. He was actually the Gloucester foil fencing champion. Mm. It wasn't number three. It wasn't Kilimanjaro. He attempted to climb Mount Everest three times. That's right. It was number two. Brian Blessed was the oldest person to reach both the geographic and magnetic North Poles. I also love this story about him. Couldn't fit it in here, but uh, may as well. As a reference to his loud and booming voice, York University voted in 2011 to name its newly built study center the Brian Blessed Center for Quiet Study. <laughs> That's true. Here ends the truth there. Wow, we got it, you guys. Wow, what a what a like a what a. What a hunk to be able to like do incredible acting and then also, you know, get out there and, and climb those mountains. He's a good guy. What can I say? He's a good guy. Have you interviewed him? Yes. I interviewed him for the book. He loves the book. We did a podcast where he, where he told me how wonderful I was because I done such a good book. So. <laughs> wow. Yep. 
Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Beria. Here's our next voicemail. Hello, Bogpod. Hey, Bogpod. Hello, Bogpod. Hey, Bogpod. Hello, Bogpod. Hey, Bogpod. Bogpod. Hey, Bogpod. Kev put it perfectly in his Letterboxd review when he compared this film to Speed Racer. This is the dumbest shit ever executed perfectly. (laughs) And it fits into my emerging theory that is adjacent to my Gen X not real films. The Gen X Some Guy movie in which the lead actor, normally a man, does not appear to have any kind of acting training and is in fact just some guy they plucked off the street as though an exec walked past sam j jones down the road and was like uh you look like some dude you look can you read and sam j jones was like yeah of course i can read i can read same thing happened to roddy piper same thing with bruce campbell in most of his roles they're just some guy movies ultimate everyman just some guy off the street that's my running theory. At least I cannot verify it. Don't ask my source. <laughs> You're thinking though. <laughs> Preferably in the Gen X range of films. What's a movie where the lead could simply be replaced by any person off the street? Mm-hmm. No formal acting training. Some hedge fund manager. Oh, yeah. Some easy. tradie. Yeah. Just some person. And yeah. the movie would be completely unchanged. Quality, narrative, everything. Anyway, kisses. See ya. Highlander, easily, right? Like you could just like put put like put anyone you want instead of Lambert. I mean, like, come on. I like him, but it's not like he's he's like essential for the movie in any in any regard. Like uh, the the last Starfighter, that guy could be like uh, could be anyone. Yes, um, you know for sure. Uh, yeah. What else? I'll do I'll do one that uh that Dave uh Mandel shouted out for a possible John book, Dragon Slayer. Oh yeah. Replace Peter McNichol. Yeah, yeah. Mark Mark Singer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a, like we never got to do our V the Last Battle uh 40th anniversary episodes. Um we'll get there. We'll be there for the 50th anniversary. But yeah. <laughs> it's more of the Beastmaster could have been literally anyone. Yeah, for sure. Like, even if you look at like the if like nowadays, if this was a Marvel movie, Flash Gordon would have been sent to that like camp where they send all of the Marvel stars to like not eat anything but tilapia um, <laughs> for six months and would have come out absolutely shredded. And like in this movie, he's like in fine. I, I wish I was in as good a shape as Flash Gordon in this movie, but like yeah. he like you know he clearly is he's enjoying just a man. beers at night. He's just he, like he's 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 finishing off a six pack by himself every now and then. So yeah. Well, John, John, remind me who it was. The wife of a studio exec, right? That picked him out. That's right. Yeah, they're, they're having problems casting. They thought they could do a Superman the movie here and cast an unknown good actor. Um, to take on the role in the way Chris Reeve did on on Superman, but uh, I mean the difference here is Sam's not a great actor, and uh, and he wasn't a very nice person at that time when they were making the picture, and we kind of go into that in the book. I spoke to Sam several times writing this book. I had to go back and clarify some of his stories. Um, he managed to get into a fight in in the West End of London uh, just a few days before filming mm-hmm. started. So there was Dino in uh, in the um, emergency room with uh, with Sam being stitched. And it's like, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, we are just days before principal photography and you've managed to do this. He got into a punch up with some Mm -hmm. football hooligans, he says. Um, But 
Yeah, you know, it was it was a shame because he looked the part, but he he was not. He'd admit himself, he's not a great actor. Um, so so, but so he left uh, before the film was complete. Yes, and especially before all the looping um, mm. was complete for dialogue work there. So I mean, I read that that they brought in another actor to do a bunch of the dialogue. I spent all of this time watching it, trying to pick it out, and it's all I like. I can't do it. Like it's all in my head. It is just all flash. Um, so you'll have to ping me offline and let me know like what are what are definite lines where I can try and isolate it. But uh, I was not able to this time. Yeah, it's kind of tricky. You know, the the way you can kind of tell is if if everyone's having to reloop their dialogue because either the sound perspective is off or there's some kind of glitch on the track, then everyone has that kind of um, in the sound box sound feel. But sometimes mm. it's really obvious when an actor is looped in a scene where the location dialogue is present, but they've been looped in a in a in a kind of a soft box, then the sound perspective is off. So right, you can always right. tell. Um, there's, yes. there's a few mm. scenes that are, are, are much more noticeable on Flash than uh, than some others, but uh, it's a shame. You know, he regrets doing that. He regrets not playing ball with Dino. But um, you know, Dino went on to do other yeah. things. But Dino did exactly what he did on Flash with Conan. He then done a big A picture again with an unknown person with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Dino and Arnie did not hit it mm -hmm. off the first time they met it was really it was frosty to say the least it was a bit swearing as well and guess what it's all in my new book mm. yeah well, uh, definitely need to check that out um and same thing um with Lynch on Dune um kind of takes the picture ultimately away from him but then this is the story like everybody gets frustrated with Dino but then they come to love him and Dino then funds Blue Velvet and puts Lynch on the path that will be the rest of his career trajectory which is which is incredible yeah Dino a real one all right here is our next voicemail mm -hmm. hello escape hatch it's Kev here and this is probably the most excited I've been about an escape hatch pick <laughs> that I haven't already seen since enemy mine I've been waiting mm. since I got into the show for you guys to cover this to watch it for the first time and boy flash gordon holds up in a similar way for me that the wachowski speed racer holds up like clearly ahead of its time full of crazy ideas it's really out there you could tell what de laurentis saw in dune mm -hmm. in this film mm -hmm. kev's question now queen is the beating heart of this flash gordon film and they embody a lot of the retro futuristic elements of the movie they really represent the heart of it when i think of flash gordon i already thought of queen but you feel it you really feel it when you watch the film mm -hmm. with that in mind what is the official band of escape hatch what band mm -hmm. am i supposed to listen to to invoke escape hatch mm-hmm very curious to hear what you have to say. I will give my input after the episode is posted in the engineers channel in the discord. Peace and love. And I will talk to you all very soon. Once again, it's Kev's questions. Mm. Wow. I think the, I think the answer, I mean, there's a lot there, there could be, there could be multiple right answers and H and I will have different answers because our music taste diverges somewhat significantly okay on on four ready we won't have the same answer one two three new Joy order vision close <laughs> right yeah there you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I think I th- New Order would be great. I think I think like yeah, like New Order Joy Division seems about. We right. did it. That ca- about- that counts, buddy. That, that counts. that's yeah. that same people. Same yeah. People. All right. Um, yeah, like I I would also accept though. I would also accept the Cure mm. or the Smiths even. Yeah. Um, any sad Brit really like would be fine. <laughs> Depeche Mode. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I thought you were going to go the orb or like I, I'm just not big enough on Aphex Twin and some of the some of the bleepy no, I wouldn't, stuff I that you get into. I, yeah, I mean that is like the, the, the that's like where you might choose for aesthetic, it's like you know, like our, our you know, like you might choose for electronic because we cover so much science fiction, futuristic. There's a, there hasn't been the great science fiction Odyssey set to you know new wave Britpop yet. True, it can ha- it can happen. It could still happen for us. It's not too late. Yeah, maybe Aphex Twin is available. Dune Messiah, like if for like for part three, like he drops Zimmer. He's like, get out of here, Zim. We're done with all your space bagpipes. It's time. <laughs> it's time to play ceremony back to front. For here we movie. go. Here we go. Uh, Kev, thank you so much. Here's our final voicemail. Cool. <laughs> Hey, this is Corey calling from Austin, Texas, about the horniest sci-fi masterpiece yeah. made in 1980, Flash Gordon. I mean, let's just cut right to it. Y'all know this is a five-star banger for me. This is an all-time favorite. I was eight yeah. when this movie came out, and I saw it in the theater. And how Mike Hodges like tapped into my my inner being and managed to yeah. put all my unknown at the time id on the movie screen is beyond me. <laughs> like this, this movie is deeply rooted in, in my psyche. Yeah. <laughs> I love it so much. I mean, imagine a world where <laughs> Flash Gordon was just as popular as Star Wars and it had a fucking right. banger trilogy like Star Wars did. That's the world I want to live in, but I know it's not the world we're living in. But that's okay. Mm. That's all right, man. Star Wars is great. Thumbs up. Two thumbs up. Way up. Star Wars. Um, yeah, this movie has it all. I really can't express how much this movie means to me. <laughs> um, and then fucking Brian Bless, like, fucking, there's some strong daddy energy coming out of that guy, right? Oh, man. Like, you just kind of want to cuddle up with him in a bed with some silk sheets and, you know, kind of hang out and scratch on that belly, maybe. I don't know. Sorry. Anyway, uh, I was got a little distracted about Brian Bless. Did you all hear that story about how he helped some lady give birth, like in his twenties? Yes. He, and he, when he helped the baby come out, he bit through the umbilical cord and was licking the baby clean in public. Have you heard about this? I read it on the <laughs> Wikipedia. It's got to be true. Anyway, Flash Gordon rules. I love it so much. Who wouldn't kill the Swinton play? Right? <laughs> I mean, any fucking role in this movie, she would be the best at. I think the obvious guess is Ming. Oh yeah. But she's a Clytus if I've ever Oh, that's good too. Ever yeah. Put Tilda in a movie. This is the perfect role for her. Clytus. Mm. So good. All right. I love you guys. Thanks for doing Flash Gordon. If only another podcast would have done this movie. I'm glad you're the first and only to cover it. All right. Bye. <laughs> that's great. Corey, I knew this movie was going to be special for Corey. When I watched it, I was like, this explains Corey. I t- it's funny it took so long to get to this 
episode to like yeah. fully understand one of our one of our greatest friends. Um, but I'm grateful for that insight into his psyche now having seen this and how it just must have like just I imagine Corey seeing this at eight or whatever, and it was just like looking into the reactor at Chernobyl and it just like <laughs> just his whole face turned red, like just neutrons seared into his brain. Yeah, some combination of aura and clitus stamped into his brain, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, per- yeah. permanent shapes Permanently there. stamped, yeah. Uh, the, the other person that I thought um, that, uh, that Tilda could play, Jason, we didn't talk about her. Do you want to say anything about General Kala? Oh, yes. My Jewish <laughs> dominatrix queen. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, amazing outfit. Uh, great, great face. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, strong sense of discipline. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> she's raising uh, those kids right for sure. She's yeah. she's she's good in this movie. She's good in this movie. That is hilarious. Uh, Guys, we did it. We, we did, did it. it. John, this is a really fun one. Really amazing. John, so tell us what do you have to plug? Uh, the current book is Wicker Man. The Wicker Man, the official story of the film, which came out a couple of weeks ago. Oh, wow. And uh, it's doing really well. So I'm really pleased. We had uh, full access to, interestingly, the completion guarantee people allowed me to access the 900 documents. And so we got to find out all of the, uh, the good and bad of uh, what happened on The Wicker Man and uh, loads of unpublished pictures, new interviews. And the story of what happened on that picture has been wrong for 50 years. And I hope that everyone thinks I've I've turned the boat, turned the ship and uh, corrected the course on that um, because uh, the fans had, had, had held on to the wrong myth, I think, for 50 years. Um, and I hope this is the right myth now they're reading about. Mm. So. Wow. Amazing. This is like uh, like Peter Jackson with the Beatles uh, with Get Back, writing, writing wrong. Uh, Edward Woodward, who people would know as the original Equalizer, uh, Christopher Lee. This is a great film, and people should, without any experience uh, or any study at all, just put it on and watch this movie. It's, it's very, very awesome. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Jason, what do you have to plug? What do I have to plug? It was... Uh juniper's birthday party at her preschool today so we went in and um we went in and read um a story to the class and uh had some fruit salad uh with her her three-year-old friends and that was very cute and adorable was it a a reading from dune messiah or it it was it was a reading from the (laughs) dune messiah it was the the confrontation between um uh paul and b jazz Uh, Uh, I thought that was appropriate for a three-year-old birthday. So yeah, it was great. And that's it for this episode of Escape Hatch. I want to thank Jason and John for a fantastic conversation. Next week, it's the triumphant return of internet visionary Tom Coates. We wind back the clock to the 1971 speculative science fact classic by Michael Crichton, The Andromeda Strain. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Take a minute to leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast, or just tell your friends about us, because it really does help new listeners find the show. We also have a Discord server where you can hang out with us online whenever you want, and a Patreon where you can support us and unlock exclusive perks. Links are in the show notes. Escape Hatch is a Tape Deck Podcast John, a production of H Industries. Our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme music was composed by Scott Fritz and Who's the Boss Music. 
The episode was edited and produced by me, H. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week. War Rocket Ajax to bring back his body.